0: Um, if you're new, um, you're in for something a little bit different this morning. Uh, we are doing a survey of the Bible in which I'm taking one single book of the Bible, uh, one week at a time, and we're moving through that. Uh, we have made our way to the book of Kings. First um, and Second Kings, in its original format, is one book. In fact, um, in the Hebrew arrangement of scriptures, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel and First and Second Kings all fit together, and they all have a similar title. They're called kingdoms, the books of the kingdoms. Um, and we're going to be looking at what we know as First and Second Kings today, and it all fits together. So I'm going to set this up for you a little bit. Then we're going to put some historical background together, and then we'll move through the content and exactly what's going on in the book. I want to start with um, setting up what's going on in this book. Danny Hayes says this. The original audience for First and 2 Kings was probably the Israelites who had been carried off into exile in Babylon. We'll talk about that in just a moment. With Jerusalem burned to the ground, these people no doubt struggled to make sense of it all and to maintain some kind of hope. Why did this happen? Is the Lord unfaithful? Or perhaps he's just weaker than the gods of Babylon. Um, in the historical flow, these people have been taken off as captive into Babylon, Daniel who ends up there, Ezekiel who ends up there, it's, it's a whole group of people, and they are away in Babylon, and they're asking, is God finished with us? First um, and Second Kings provide a very clear and important answer to these questions. The exile came as a result of Israel and Judah's repeated and continued obstinate disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant, especially in Deuteronomy, we're going to see that. The great tragedy of this story is that they had only themselves to blame. Um, here's what's going on. They're going, how could, how could this happen to us We're God's chosen people? And, and the answer of First and 2 Kings is, you brought this on yourself, and God has actually been faithful to do what he said he would do, and that is discipline you. And he disciplined you in in successive stages, and you never responded. And he told you back in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 30 to 32, he told you, if you don't listen to what I'm doing, I'm eventually going to move you out of the country. And that is exactly what happens. And so here's kind of the flow. We're going to set this up and go through this a number of times. First and second kings, when you put them all together, it has a whole section about Solomon. And, and Solomon uh, starts off pretty good, but he's a very ambiguous character. Um, he's, he's kind of good, but he ends up being a mess. And, and there's maybe some hints at the very beginning that he's, he's not everything we might, hoped he, might hope he would be. Um, Solomon ends his reign after 40 years, and he hands over the kingdom to um, his son and an army general who divide the kingdom. So there's a whole section where the kingdom is divided, and, and you have a presentation of the kings of Israel in the north, the kings of Judah in the south, and it alternates back and forth between the two of them. It'll be a couple of from the north and a couple from the south, a couple from the north, until finally, um, in 722, the nation in the north is wiped out by the Assyrians, and they are scattered, and other people are brought into that northern area to um, make the area really depleted and lose their national identity. Um, So that happens in the middle section of the book. But the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, continues, and the last part of the book talks about the continuation of the kingdom of Judah until they, because of their unfaithfulness, are taken away captive by the Babylonians. The Babylonians... um, overcome the Assyrians in 612 at the Battle of Carchemish, and then the, ba- the Babylonians become the major world power. They come down to Judah, and they take them away as captives. So this is the flow of the book. There's the united kingdom under Solomon. Saul, David, and Solomon have the kingdom united. The kingdom divides after Solomon, Israel, and Judah. Israel comes to an end in 722 BC. Judah continues until 586 BC. That's kind of the flow of the book. But some important things happen. There's two guys who have ministries in this book that interrupt the flow of king, 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 um, the ministries of Elijah Elijah and Elisha. And these guys are paradigmatic for the whole prophets, and all the other prophets that we know that we'll eventually get to, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of those guys, they are following in the footsteps of Elijah and Elisha. But in this book of, of Kings, we have this interruption that says during this period when the kingdom is divided and everything is falling apart, God doesn't just leave them. He sends these two prophets. There's another thing that happens that's really important to take note of. When there's only one kingdom left in the south, Judah, um, there are two guys who lead pretty significant revivals. One is named Hezekiah, and it's because of some things that are happening. The Assyrians are actually threatening the southern kingdom and And uh, um, Hezekiah goes and he, and he complains about this, and uh, there 's a, a an intriguing story that takes place, but he ends up leading a huge revival during that time. His son becomes the worst king there is, but then after that there 's another guy whose name is Josiah. He takes the throne when he 's very young, when he gets to be a little bit older they're cleaning out the temple, and they discover literally the book of Deuteronomy. That's why on the chart I have the scrolls down there, because Josiah discovers the book of Deuteronomy. He reads it, and it leads to another national revival, okay? Now, these are things that are going on. God's using people in this, but it, it's something that, that God is bringing about. So this is, this is the book of 1 Kings. Solomon, united kingdom, a divided kingdom, Punctuated in that divided kingdom up in the north is Elijah and Elisha who are prophets who are speaking, who are powerful, doing miracles and calling the people to repent of their Baal worship. Um, and then when the, king, the southern kingdom is left, a couple of major revivals take place and then it's all downhill until they're taken captive by the Babylonians. Now, I want to put this together Um, historically. We've talked about how the Pentateuch sets up kind of how God's outworking in his plan because he wants to be in relationship with us. That's where we started in the garden. Our sin separated us from him. God has a plan to restore his rule and restore us into relationship with him. And, And that plan is to build a nation so that out of that nation, a king will come who will die for us and then rule. So this whole thing about why we have to have a Jewish nation, it's because it's not just some dude who dies for us, it's a king who is going to die for us. So we've been putting this together, and we've got this chart that, that looks like this, and, and, and we have put some things together, and I, what I want to say is kind of backing up just a little bit, um, we have looked at um, this Joshua thing in the historical books. Joshua, after the Pentateuch, Joshua leads them into the land, and, and Joshua conquers the land and divides the land. Then there's the period of Judges that takes place for about 400 years, which is these warlord-like leaders who are all over the land, and they are charismatic leaders, they're dynamic, um, but they're a mess, and so they're not helpful at all. Then we looked at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel together the last time we were looking at this, and First and Second Samuel covers the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David. So it kind of gets us from, from the period of Judges, it moves us into the United Kingdom. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1st and 2nd Kings. And 1st and 2nd Kings is going to take about, talk about Solomon, and then the divided kingdom in the north, and then it comes to an end in 722. And then 136 years later, the southern kingdom is going to be taken away captive. And that happens in 586 BC. Now, I've told you that Elijah and Elisha are um, living during this time, but so are all of these guys that we call the pre-exilic prophets. We're going to understand this a little bit later, but there are a number of prophets who, who prophesy prior to the exile in Babylon, prior to the time, of the people who are reading first and second kings these prophets are going to prophesy some in Israel some in Judah then there are going to be some exilic prophets Daniel and Ezekiel who prophesy during that exile then there are going to be three right at the end and that's going to be Haggai Zephan, Zechariah and Malachi who prophesy post-exilically but these prophets all fit into this section that we're looking at today so first and second kings is going to mention a couple of these prophets but all of these prophets are prophesying during the time period of First and Second Kings. Now, I want to zero in on this. Uh, we've looked at this. Saul's going to reign from 1050 until David takes over in 1010, about 40 years. David is going to reign for 40 years until 970 when Solomon is going to take over. Now, we're going to talk about the condition of their heart for a moment here. <laughs> um, we have looked at that, and we see that, that um, Saul has no heart for God. He doesn't respond to God. He's he's going to be used by God. God's even going to empower him for a while, but the spirit's going to be taken away from him because he's not responsive to God. David has a whole heart for God. Solomon has a real divided heart. He has a half heart for God, and because of that, he's going to leave a divided kingdom. So we're going to look at this divided kingdom that he leaves. Israel is in the north and Judah is in the south. In the north, there are 19 kings, and in the south, there are 20 kings. There, some of them kind of overlap, and some of them change their names, but there's 19 in the north, 20 in the south. And in the north, there are zero good kings, because what happens is, when the northern kingdom breaks away, uh, Jeroboam, who is the army general for Solomon, um, he takes the people up there, and God says, if you're going to go up there, just remember to follow me, but immediately... What Jeroboam does is he sets up idol worship with a golden calf, just like what they did at Mount Sinai. He sets up an idol worship and sets up some false centers of worship, and they never recover from that. None of the kings um, lead any kind of a revival. In the south, they struggle with this idolatry, and it gets really, really bad, but there are eight kings who at least follow the Lord for a period of their life Two of them are major heroes, Hezekiah and Josiah, who are going to lead, um, they're, they're going to lead a revival, okay? So put some history together for you, but now you've been listening, I'm going to ask uh, my two assistants, I'm going to ask Allie and Ann Haven to come up here, and they're going to help me with some hand motion. So I need all of you to stand up, and we're going to put some things together here, okay? We're going to go all the way back to our time with Joshua, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to put some hand motions together, and I've got a few I'm going to add today, okay? So we're going to start off and just take this map that's up there, and all of our maps are going to be on this side. So you're always, when you turn to the maps, I need everybody, wherever you're at, turning that way. Even if you're over there, turn that way. The map, take that map and lay it down like this. So we're going to start off by giving some hand motions to help us remember the flow of all of this. So we're going to start off by saluting, because Joshua is a general, okay? So we're going to say Joshua, and then what I want you to do is just cross the Jordan. Joshua, Jordan, then you're going to come back here, and Jericho's going to fall. So the walls of Jericho fall. Let's just do those three, really easy, okay? One, two, three, Joshua, Jordan, Jericho, with your mouth as well, okay? (laughs) So after we do Jericho falling, we're going to turn on our map like this, and we're going to divide because Joshua divides the nation, and he goes to the south first and then to the north. You can see it on the map up there. The blue line is him going through the middle of the nation. Then he goes to the south and the north. So we're going to turn. We're going to go divide and conquer south, north. Then he's going to divide and settle the land into 12 tribes. So I need you to chop it up into 12 tribes and turn back around to the front, okay? Let's do that all together with your mouth and your body, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Joshua, Jordan, Jericho, divide, conquer, south, north, divide, settle, 12 tribes. And as you come around to the 12 tribes, what we're going to do is we're going to remember the time of the judges. So as you divide, when you get back around to the front, I just need you to do judges, okay? Then we're going to describe what happens during the time of the judges, and we're going to do this. We're going to say, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, except, and we're going to have two exceptions, Ruth, who lived during this time, and Samuel, okay? So let's do all this together, okay? Just, we're going to move around, Uh, let's do um, divide-conquer, okay? Divide, conquer, south, north, divide, settle, 12 tribes, judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, except Ruth and Samuel, okay? Okay? So we've got that. Then what's going to happen is we're going to do what we did the last time we were together. We're going to take Ruth and Samuel here. Then we're going to do the United Kingdom, which lasts 120 years. Now, in a minute, we're going to do 400 years. So give yourself 120, and then 400s coming later. So we're going to have Ruth and Samuel, United Kingdom, 120 years, and then we're going to do this. We're going to talk about the three kings. Saul, by his heart, we're going to do Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. And Solomon's going to lead the divided kingdom, which is going to last 400 years. Then we're going to turn to our map again and we're going to go north, south, Israel, Judah, 1920, 08. Okay? So let's start with uh, Judges. Okay, ready? <laughs> judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes except Ruth and Samuel. United Kingdom 120 years. Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart, divided kingdom, four hundred years, north, south, Israel, Judah, nineteen twenty, zero, eight. Now we're gonna add something to what we're doing here because we've got to take into account Elisha, Elijah, and all of the prophets. And so here's what happens in the book of Kings. Elijah is going to be a paradigmatic prophet. You're going to see that in just a minute. Elisha is going to follow him, but they're kind of the models for what all of the pre-exilic prophets are going to do. So we need to talk about all these prophetic guys. So here's what we're going to do. After we finish 1920, 8, you're going to help you remember, you've got an 8 that makes you think about your mouth because you just ate something. I want everybody to pull back to the center and say, Prophets speak, because all the prophets are going to speak during this time. Prophets speak, and then we're going to give them this. Shape up, and then turn it, or ship out. Because what's going to happen is they're going to go from where they are, Israel and Judah, up to the north, okay? So we're going to do it on three, one, two, three. Prophets speak, shape up, or ship out. Let's see if we can do it all together. I'm not going to have it all up here, but we're going to start all the way back with Joshua, okay? Ready? Let's see if we can put it all together. One, two, three. Joshua, Jordan, Jericho, divide, conquer, south, north. Divide, settle, 12 tribes, judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes except Ruth and Samuel. United Kingdom, 120 years. Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, Half-heart, divided kingdom, 400 years, here we go, north, south, Israel, Judah, 1920, 08, prophets speak, shape up or ship out. You guys are awesome. Thank you, and thank you, Allie and Ann Haven. Okay, you understand the setting. Now we're going to get back into some of the details of the book of Kings, okay? To understand Kings, there's a few things you need to understand. You need to understand what the kings were supposed to do, and you need to understand what the prophets are doing, okay? So we're going to start off with some kingship ideals. We talked about this later or earlier. Back in Deuteronomy, which is one of the reasons when Josiah discovers Deuteronomy, it leads to a revival because he, leads, he reads this stuff. Deuteronomy 17 says this, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, they settled in the 12 tribes, and you say let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. That's really kind of the focus of 1st and 2nd Samuel. They chose Saul, a mess. God's choice was David, much better, but he's not perfect. The other thing it says is this. The king moreover must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. By the way, they end up back there. Um, a bunch of them end up in Egypt. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. That's exactly what Solomon does that messes things up. He begins to accumulate many wives and they turn his heart away. Now his, his, his wives, there's an interesting dynamic here. I just want you to think about this. I don't know exactly where to land it. Um, he's got a lot of wives and a lot of concubines, but only one son. I don't know what is going on there, whether all of this was just political um, political arrangements to kind of build his kingdom. Um, Solomon is a, is a real mixed bag of, of, of good and bad. And so I, I do wonder why we only have one son, Rehoboam, and there's no intrigue. David has a bunch of sons, and they end up trying to kill each other to get the kingdom. You would think Solomon would have a whole lot more children. Um, he's got one son, few daughters. Um, Just think about that. I got nothing for you more than that, okay? Um, As we think about these kingship ideals, it also says this. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, Deuteronomy, taken from that of the Levitical priests, it is to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. He's supposed to be the model, not better than them, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom Israel. This is exactly what the kings don't do. Um, In fact, it gets so bad that by the time you get to Josiah, they have literally lost the law. They find it in a closet downstairs. And by the way, before you just go, how can that happen? Go look under the counter out there and look for your lost Bibles that have your names engraved on them. Don't leave your Bibles here. Oh, my word. Now, there's another thing that's going to happen here. We, we've, we've moved, and the book is going to start with the decline of David. Here's the first verses of First and Second Kings. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that uh, our Lord, the king, may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shulamite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. By the way, what's highlighting here is David's not the man he used to be. Um, it, It goes out of its way to say David was very old. And you think about this David who earlier in his life sees the beautiful woman Bathsheba and takes advantage of it but now there's a beautiful woman, and there's nothing going on, literally nothing going on. Um, what's happening here is David's at the end of his life. There's a problem here. And what he does is he is gonna turn the, the, the kingdom over to Solomon. And I just, all I can tell you is Solomon is ambiguous at best. Um, it seems like, even though there's some good things said about Solomon, even in the good things, there's little hints that you just go, whoa, what? What's he doing there? I don't encourage anyone to try to figure out what all is here. Um, But there are some positive things that are said about Solomon and some negative things that are said about Solomon, and they all fit in the same way. He uses wisdom with a couple of women really well, but then he uses wisdom to really make himself famous. Um, Solomon is a mixed bag from the very beginning. Now, we we tend to go, oh, look, he started off good and he ended bad. He started off good, but you can see some of the threads that are going to be a problem in there. Bruce Waltke says this, the narrator structurally, not necessarily chronologically, interrupts his narration about building the temple, which is what Solomon is really famous for, with an account of Solomon building his own palace complex to suggest suddenly the division of Solomon's heart. His own palace is considerably longer and more than twice as wide. As his love becomes increasingly divided, his wisdom also becomes increasingly devoted to his own splendor, not I am's. He does build the temple, but in the middle of building the temple, it stops to say, and he built a really super big house for himself. And it just leads you to go, really, What's, what, what in the world is going on here? Um, the kingship leads all of these kings into idolatry. Here's the summary of of Solomon's life at at, at the end. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully, as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, on the mountain that is east of Jerusalem. Um, He builds it on the Mount of Olives. Um, And for Molech, the abhorrent idol of the sons of Ammon. He also did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Really? <laughs> Here's this guy who's got all the wisdom in the world, but he's not using it for the Lord's benefit. He's using it for his own benefit and to make these alliances. Um, and just like God said, if you multiply wives, they're going to lead you astray. They're gonna, and that's the problem. The problem wasn't he had children. It doesn't even mention any of them if they're there. The problem is he wanted to keep them happy, and he's building altars for their gods. And it leads him astray. But the key phrase there is he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the book of first and second kings, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, shows up 31 times. That's the characterization of these guys. Um, sometimes it says, um, he did just like his father, and his father did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay? So this, this is what's going on with the kings. There's, they're not doing what God has asked them to do, which is keep yourself embedded in the law, keep yourself engaged in the law. They're not doing that and they're drifting away, and they're leading the people away. I need to talk about prophets for just a minute, because Elijah and Elisha, all the pre-exilic prophets, are taking place during this period of First and Second Kings. In the book of Deuteronomy, it all goes back to Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are two tests for the prophets. Here's the first test in chapter 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign and a wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place... And the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So a guy could come in, even if his prophecies come true. If he leads you away from the law, don't listen to him, but it doesn't stop there. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and you must re- him you must revere. Keep his commands, obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him that prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Kill him. Even if his prophecies come true. If he's telling you to move away from the Lord, kill the guy. Okay. Test number one, prophecy may come true. If he's leading you away from the Lord, don't listen to him, kill him. Now, my guess is once you're ready to kill him, he's going to run away. Test number two. This is Deuteronomy 18. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? If a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord, if what the prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Don't be alarmed. Don't pay attention. So if they say something that comes true, but they tell you to move away from the Lord, don't listen to him, kill him. If they say something and it doesn't come true, you don't have to listen, which is why the prophets so frequently will prophesy things that are going to happen in the near future and things that are going to happen far off. Daniel does this Daniel says, hey, there's going to be a change in kingdoms. The Babylonians are going to be taken over by the Persians, and it happens in his lifetime, which allows you to trust the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled 600 years later when Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem on the Palm... It's really Monday, but we call it Palm Sunday. It was Monday. Um, When he enters in on that day on the triumphal entry. And Daniel prophesied that exactly. But the people could trust that because he prophesied some things that happened in the near future. And sometimes those things are like little mini fulfillments. It's kind of a shadow fulfillment that happens right in front of them. And then it's like a, a rock skipping. I'm going to use this image again and again. The prophets prophesy things, and, and something happens right in front of them that people can say, oh, what he said is true. And so the next things are going to be true as well. Okay? Jesus does this too. Jesus is a prophet, and he predicts something that happens in his lifetime, his death. He predicts his resurrection, and it happens. And because he predicts his resurrection and it happens, everything else he says, I'm the Son of God, I can forgive your sins, I'm coming back to rule and reign and set everything straight, you can trust that. So because these prophets are, are doing things that happen in their lifetime, you can trust the big things. Danny Hayes says this, the Elijah narratives, we're talking about prophets now, the Elijah narratives accomplish several important things. Elijah proclaims the prophetic indictment against the house of Ahab for covenant violation. Ahab is the worst in the north. Um, These narratives also reveal a shift in the overall story from the national big picture to a focus on individuals. I mean, we're still moving through kings, but it kind of goes within the kings who are just a mess. There are some individuals who are following the Lord. In fact, there's a huge remnant. Elijah demonstrates that salvation and deliverance, indeed life itself, were available through true worship of God, not through the monarchy and the king's royal reign, uh, religion. Basically, um, Elijah and Elisha kind of remind us what Ruth reminded us. In the times when the judges ruled, there's chaos and a mess, but there are people like Ruth and Boaz who are following the Lord. Elijah and Elisha remind us, as the kingdoms are falling apart... There are people like Elijah and Elisha and a huge remnant that are truly following the Lord. Um, Again, Bruce Walkie says it this way. Against the atrocities of the house of Omri, and Ahab is part of the house of Omri, you'll see that in just a minute, the prophet historian slows down the pace, "...and focuses narrowly on Elijah and Elisha. Their awesome miracles and prophecies magnify Yahweh, vindicate the Mosaic Covenant, and leave Israel condemned for their impiety toward Yahweh in their immorality um, toward their fellows. Yahweh does not fail. Israel does. They've got no one to blame but themselves." An interesting thing happens with Elijah. I know you cannot read a word on the screen. I don't need you to read a word on the screen. Moses and Elijah are parallel. Every one of those lines is something that happens for Moses and happens with Elijah. They do the same things in their life over and over again, which explains something in the New Testament. These two guys are the ones who show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. (laughs) Why these two guys? Because Moses represents the early prophets that says everything in the Pentateuch, Moses is there to say, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this and Elijah is there to say, yes, and everything the prophets prophesy, Jesus is the one. It's no mistake that these two guys show up. They are parallel in their ministries, and they represent everything in the Pentateuch and everything in the rest of the historical books and all the prophets to say, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Now, one of the other things that happens in this book is that they're going to end up in exile, um, this is near the end. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practice of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. They, not only did they, did they follow the, the, the gods that were already there, some of these kings introduced new ways to be idolatrous. And because of that, they're going to get kicked out of the land here's the end of the book. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin, the second to the last king, but he ends up being the last king because the other guy dies, and he's still alive. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar took him captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land, probably Ezekiel, Daniel, a few of those other guys. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made uh, Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So he takes Jehoiachin captive into Babylon. He sets up another guy, Zedekiah, to be the king. But now here's the very last, the last words of 2 Kings. In the 37th year in the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, he's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Um, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon because the Babylonians had been conquering nations all over the place. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. That's the last verses. Basically, the book is going to say this. <laughs> It's all fallen apart, and it's your, it's your fault. You brought this on yourselves, but there's still a king alive in Babylon. There's hope. And the readers we're going to see in just a minute are the people who were alive during that time, and they're wondering, is there any hope? Yes, there's still a king alive. So now we're going to move through our little template really quickly here, the context. Who, where, uh, when, where, and why, okay? Who composed kings? Well, using court records and national stories, someone—perhaps Ezekiel or Ezra—someone in that exilic or post-exilic community, maybe even Jeremiah, when he's taken captive. Um, the Jewish, the Jewish rabbis believe Jeremiah, um, when he was brought, he, he escapes to Egypt when the when the Assyrians and the Babylonians come. He escapes to to Egypt, but then the Babylonians conquer. Egypt, and they maybe take Jeremiah back. So one of these guys gathered in order the history of the nation from a united kingdom under Solomon through the division of the kingdom, conquest of Israel, and captivity of Judah. Here's the point. The writer was part of this exilic community. He's part of the people who are outside the land. He's gathering these stories and putting them together to tell them, hey, you brought this on yourself, but there's hope. When did it happen? The events covered in the book of Kings begin with the transition of the united kingdom from David to Solomon in 970 B.C., until sometime after the Babylonian conquest, there's three times that the Babylonians take people away, 605, when they probably take Daniel, 598, when they probably take Ezekiel, and 586, when they wipe out Jerusalem. When the, king, when the last king, Jehoiachin, was released from bondage, probably 560. So they wipe out um, Jerusalem in 586, but... It's enough years after that that the last verses take place. It's probably 560. When was King, C- Kings composed? The book of Kings was composed during this exilic period when the exiles were in Babylon, even those brought from Egypt, providing them hope for the future. God's not finished with you. You brought this on yourself, but God's not finished with you. Where were they? The original audience was living outside the land of Israel, likely in Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, and wondering what led to their captivity outside the promised land, and if there was any hope for the future. So basically, here's what's going on. Here's the northern kingdom, and it is wiped out by the Assyrians. The the southern kingdom of Judah is going to be wiped out by the Babylonians. Here's what that looks like. Here is the Assyrian empire, and they're going to come down, and they're going to take uh, the Israelites in the northern kingdom, they're going to take them away. And a lot of the people from the other lands that they have conquered, they're going to move them into Israel. Now, if you'll notice, the reason that, that Israel and Judah are important is not because they are so important. It's because Egypt is who they're fighting with. And if you can get control of Israel and Judah, you've got a pathway down to Egypt. And that's, that is exactly what keeps happening the Assyrians are eventually wiped out, and they are beaten in 612 at the Battle of Carchemish by the Babylonians. So here's the Babylonian Empire, and they're going to come down to Judah, and they're going to take them away captive. Rather than taking the people away and putting new people in, what they do is they take the intelligentsia, they take the the fighting men and all of the the wise people, the king, they take them away and put some other people in charge who they can control. But all of the strong leaders who might lead a rebellion, those guys are the ones... Um, who have been taken away so that they can't lead a rebellion in the land this is where they were there are three um, times that the babylonians come down by the way the babylonians are always going to egypt and on their way back in 605 they grab some guys on they go down to egypt on their way back they grab some guys in 598 and then they finally just get tired of the rebellions and in 586 they wipe out the entire uh, the entire city and burn the temple to the ground why was kings written Kings was written to show God's people that the Lord was faithful to judge his people according to the Palestinian covenant. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Repentance brings restoration. Even when they had a monarchy and that he had not abandoned them, but had sent prophets to call them back to covenant faithfulness. That's why I have this book. It's a story. It's your fault. God didn't leave you alone. He sends you prophets. Every now and then there's a revival and there's hope for the future. Why was kings written? The Sovereign Lord, and this is, by the way, the same thing I've said a couple other times, the Sovereign Lord is always at work to bring about his plan and fulfill his promises, regardless of how it may look at the time. So the content. How is this arranged? It's pretty simple. You've got the United Kingdom, the Divided Kingdom, and then the Remnant Kingdom. It's Solomon, Divided Kingdom, Judah. Okay, That's kind of the big over, overarching thing. But if you pull the Elijah and Elisha narratives into it. It basically is this huge chiasm that in the middle is going to show the, the dynasty of Omri, which is the worst in the north, and led by the worst, Ahab and his um, Canaanite pagan wife Jezebel. Um, they're at the center of all these stories, but in the middle of all of their, their stories, when it gets as bad as it can get, God sends Elijah and Elisha to give them hope. So once again, here's what we've got. We've got Solomon, then we've got a divided kingdom, then we've got one kingdom left, and then God is going to send Elisha and Elisha. By the way, if you're trying to figure out how this goes, it's alphabetical too. The J comes before the S, Elijah, Elisha. And then there's going to be two revivals under Hezekiah and under Josiah. That's what goes on in this book. So what's the message? What, what are we supposed to take away from here? Here's on the chart that's out there at the Connection Center and there's some charts from first and second Samuel and, and Kings out there. Here's what first and second Kings is telling us. The author recorded the United Kingdom's zenith and decline under Solomon. Followed by the divided kingdoms' decline, including the failure to listen to the word of the Lord through the prophets, with a focus on the mercy and grace of Yahweh, which gave them blessing under the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic covenants. In order to show these exiles that their expulsion from the land was the natural outgrowth of the promises of God, which guaranteed God's faithfulness. If He's going to do everything He said, like kick you out of the land, you can guarantee He'll restore you to the land. Um, to his covenant and to provide the exiles with the hope of restoration in accordance with the covenant so where do we go with that hopefully you know where first and kings fits and, and what we're supposed to do with it okay what should we believe here's a couple things human leaders are not the solution um whether they're powerful whether they're handsome whether they're wise human leaders are not the solution That's why the solution probably starts up in our prayer room this week on Wednesday when people start confessing their sins. That's the solution. The consequences of sin are certain and inevitable. You bring this stuff on yourself. God sends people to deliver his word and call them back to faithfulness. God doesn't leave you alone. His word is out there, and people are preaching it, like me. God never gives up on his people or his promises. Believe that. That's what the exiles were wondering. How did we get here? Well, you brought it on yourself, but God hasn't abandoned you. So how should we behave? Pray for your political and spiritual leaders, but put your hope in God's plan and promises. Pray for all the kings, but that's not where your hope is. Stand against the flow of society in order to be faithful to God. Repent of your modern idolatry, because we don't worship gods that are standing up. We just worship our checkbook and our cars and our careers and our house and our reputation and our Facebook profile. Repent of whatever your modern, modern idolatry, whatever drives your life that's not serving God. And maintain allegiance to the Lord. So, where does this all fit? It's a tragic demonstration of the failure of human leadership. It's a clear demonstration of God's faithfulness to people to discipline them and to bless them. And it's a compelling call to covenant loyalty. If you want to avoid all this, be loyal to God. So a few next steps. Listen to the word of God and respond appropriately. When Elijah, Elisha, when when people are declaring the word of God to you, listen and respond appropriately. One of the things that is so true of Moses and Elijah is people respond to them. Rest in the hope of God's promises and nowhere else. Don't rest in, in your um, retirement plan. Don't rest in any political leaders. Don't don't rest in anything other than the Lord. And, and I, I I really want to encourage you. Prepare for Easter by spending some time in the prayer room on Ash Wednesday. It's open at six in the morning till seven in the evening. Drop by. There's some guidance for you in there on how to pray. How to pray. There's going to be how to lament. How to confess sin. Spend some time starting. Where revival starts, and that is before the Lord, confessing sin. Revival doesn't start in Asbury, Kentucky, in Asbury, in Wilmore, Kentucky. By the way, if you've ever been to Wilmore, you have to really want to go there to get there. But that's not where revival starts. Revival starts in our hearts when we're honest before the Lord, and He makes a change in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would um, apply your Word to us that this would not just be a history lesson, but it would be an example lesson of how we learn to follow you well. So, Father, we submit ourselves to your work in our lives, and Father, we ask you to um, draw us closer to you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.